Welcome to Union Chapel. Uh, in lieu of uh, while you're receiving the offering, I want to give you some really exciting news. I want to give you an update on our REACH campaign. You'll recall that for the past two years, 2016 and 17, we had a capital campaign we called REACH. And we have uh, some totals there, and I want to share with you how we have expended and will uh, expend and invest the money that you gave for the cause of Christ. Now, you'll see on the screen that we uh, received a million dollars, a million eighty thousand dollars. That's pretty good. That's where you clap. That's remarkable. That's amazing. So thank you so much for your generosity. That's just really, really exceptional, and so thank you for that. You may, you may recall that the campaign had three primary emphases. We wanted to pay down the mortgage. We wanted to uh, do some campus upgrades. Our, our facilities are anywhere from 15 to 27 years old. And every once in a while, you've got to upgrade things and freshen things up. And so we've done a number of those things. And the third component of the campaign was around our mission, which is to plant churches uh, here and there. And so let me just show you about the mortgage payoff. We, uh, we are going to designate 244000 toward the mortgage, and you'll see how, where the balance will be then on our mortgage as soon as we make that payment this week. And so the balance after the payment is a million and a half. So we still have about a million and a half to go on our mortgage, and you know that's like starting to get in reach now, and we're very excited about getting that paid off in the next couple of years. And so that's where it is. I mentioned that to you just so you know you're aware of what the mortgage is. A million and a half, and if you have it, you might want to just pay it off for us. That would be great. <laughs> or maybe a couple of you would like to team up and pay it off. That would, be, that would be wonderful. I'm certainly open to that. Here's the second category, campus upgrades. We, we have uh, already spent $390,000 of the REACH campaign on campus upgrades, and there's a short list of some of the major items that we have invested that money in. Uh, the sanctuary and sanctuary lobby has been uh, renovated and if you've been over there, you know it's just very nice and very well appointed. We have groups who want to use that space all the time. It's a, it's a great gathering spot. It's a great uh, collection spot for smaller groups out in the lobby so forth. It's just great space, and I, I know you appreciate that. Also, we have redone our infant and preschool rooms over in the children's wing. It's a, a beautiful space. Now, if you haven't been over there, I encourage you just to go over and kind of stick your nose in the room. They are clean, they are fresh, they are warm, they are great, and beautiful environments for our children and, and those who work with our kids, and I know you feel good about that. We're excited about that. The children's lobby was also completely renovated, and it's a beautiful space now as well. Our 180 coffee shop in this building, which many of you access uh, all the time, I know you, that you find that's a, a very nice space. We're proud of that. Uh, we sealed the parking lot. That's a big ticket item. So, you know, we took reach money for that, and we bought a new van. So that is really the, the highlights of how we've spent in campus upgrades of $390,000. Now, to church planting, uh, we have designated $445,000 to church planting. You'll see the last two lines there on, on, on that slide indicates that we've already spent $244,000 in church planting. I want to explain that in just a moment which leaves a balance of 200000 So we still have $200,000 that we can invest in new church development. We're very excited about that. So let me just go through this list real quickly. Many of you know Paul Erminger. He's, he served on our staff, our 180 team, for a number of years. And just last fall, he planted Gulfside Church in Cape Coral, Florida. 
I just talked to Paul yesterday. They had the largest attendance they've had since launch Sunday. Just this past week, they had about 200 people there. He's very excited. Their, their income is, is strong. We're encouraged about Gulfside Church. They're, they're on their way, and we're happy for Paul. Also, uh, you've met Ryan Miller. Ryan's been with us. He has uh, launched Pathway Community Church, which we are partnering with in Marietta, Ohio. I just spoke with Ryan yesterday on the phone. Pathway Community Church is already the largest church in Marietta, Ohio. And this next Sunday, uh, this next Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, they're going to launch a youth ministry for the first time. They're very excited about that. We have a contract with them of support and funding and that sort of thing. We, we build an MOU, a memo of understanding, and, and have written with those two churches. Many of you know the name Randy Craning. Randy is um, a former staff person whom 11 years ago we sent to Fort Collins, Colorado to plant a church. He's recently merged his congregation with another congregation, inherited a new building there, uh, which I've shown you pictures of. It's just an astonishing story. And so we are helping Randy relaunch his local church. Clearwater Church is the new name. And so they'll be doing that in the next couple of months. We're very excited about the potential there for amazing fruitfulness. The last two names are new contracts that we have recently signed to help them plant churches. One is Jay Harvey. He is planting a church in Anderson, Indiana, inner city called City Church. Jay, I'm going to introduce to you in the next couple of weeks with his wife, Shelly. You're going to be very impressed with Jay. And we're very excited about partnering with City Church in Anderson, ministering to the marginalized people in the inner city of Anderson, Indiana. And finally, Adam Keyes is also another guy that we've contracted with, and he uh, is, a, is a young man, that, a young leader that we met in our initiatives down in Cape Coral. He was serving as a worship leader in one of the large churches in that area of Florida, and we have befriended Adam, and God has brought us together, and so we are partnering with him. And this fall, Adam will launch Blueprint Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And you will meet Adam in a couple of weeks as well. So I'm looking forward to introducing both Jay and Adam to you guys in the next few weeks. And so we're very excited about that. In addition to that, we have a number of other churches and other candidates for church planting. And they're in the pipeline. And we can see unfolding opportunity for years to come in this initiative. And I know you're as excited about that as I am. It's just really great news. So let's give the Lord a real... A real word of praise and thanks for his provision. It's just great fun. Yeah, so great. Well, we've been talking about the blessed life the last few weeks, and I want to conclude the series this morning by using this theme, the Lord has need of it. And where I got that phrase is from a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus the last time he enters Jerusalem. We typically celebrate this during Palm Sunday each year uh, during Holy Week. And we're just going to take a phrase out of that passage today and see what God may have to say to us about it. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Luke 19, I want to read for us verses 29 to 40. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, would you please? So Luke uh, unpacks this story by saying, As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. 
It's a brand new cult. <laughs> Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. The Lord has need of it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. <laughs> well, there's a lot to learn in this passage. Uh, many sermons there. But just this one phrase, the Lord has need of it. May we be inspired and encouraged. Uh, you may be seated. Thanks so much. You know, in reading this particular passage of Scripture, uh, I realize that there's a character here who's not mentioned by name, uh, never referred to in any personal way, never spoken of again. And the story of Jesus' triumphal entry has enormous implications, historic implications and prophetic implications. It's a very poignant and powerful and important story in the life of Jesus. And yet, uh, I wanted to focus for some reason on the guy who supplied the donkey. How important was it that he supply this donkey? This has raised the question. Then I thought, well, what, what was a donkey in first century Palestine? Well, it was a means of conveyance, transportation. It was a very valuable possession. Uh, very few people had these kinds of animals. And the primary purpose of the animal was to be a working vehicle. And when I thought... Yeah, it's a working vehicle. I saw in my mind's eye a beautiful, new, shiny, bright red, 4x4 Dodge Ram pickup truck. <laughs> now, listen, I'm not very conversive in pickup truck, but this thing was amazing. You know, oversized, blacked out wheels, beautiful cherry red paint. Uh, this, this, thing, this thing was spectacular. Snap-on bed, you know, nice and tidy, neat bed cover. Um, incorporated antenna into the roof of this thing that would accommodate cellular and satellite and Wi-Fi. It was hot. A speaker system with eight, eight different locations for speakers. A big gun rack in the back window. Two... <laughs> Two different gauges of shotguns plus a rifle. Beautiful display. This is unbelievable. And under the hood, a V10 Hemi engine. This was an angry engine, my friends. And very powerful. And it was all brand new. Read there, which no one has ever ridden. Now, how can a man simply allow someone to drive off in a fully equipped, brand new Dodge Ram pickup truck? How's that possible? I mean, how does a man just fold his arms and watch a perfect stranger drive off in his new truck? Three points on your outline today. Here's the first one. Write this down. Jesus is Lord. Write down the word Lord. Jesus is Lord. See, I realize the story couldn't just begin here. This is a, a level of generosity toward which you move. This isn't like the first step this guy's taken in generosity. This is a a subsequent step to other steps that he has taken along the way. 
of stewardship and generosity and obedience. And so what I discovered from a little research is that Jesus had actually been in that man's village sometime before in Bethphage. It's just a small town just east of Jerusalem. And while Jesus was there, he performed a miracle on a certain young man who was in that village. Now, it's speculation on my part that these two men, the one Jesus performed the miracle on and the one that provided the donkey, that these are one and the same men. But it's a pretty small town, and it's possible, speculation, that they're the same guy. Let me explain the miracle. There was a young man in Bethphage who was demon-possessed. He was cut off from his family, wounded emotionally, cut off from any affection or love. He's unable to speak. He's unable to hear. And while there is nothing anatomically wrong with him, you understand, he is filled with the demons of hell. And he is totally out of his mind. He is insane. There is, there, they, he has lost complete touch with reality. People are afraid of him. He's afraid of himself. He lives like a beast. He, he sleeps at night in the shadows of the village alleys. During the days, he cowers in the corners behind bundles, under stairwells. Occasionally, a person will take pity on him and throw him a crust of moldy bread, which he gobbles up like a dog. He is separated, separated from love of any kind, any embrace, no moment of tenderness. He's living the demonized nightmare of his life, in the shadows, out of his mind, unable to comprehend himself or others in humanity or even God. Then, one day, a crowd is passing by in his village, a parade of enthusiasm, celebration, if you will. He pushes himself deeper into the shadows. He's afraid of this unusual commotion. And then as the crowd and their shadows are pushing by him, he realizes a pair of sandals that have stopped right in front of him. He's unwilling to look up. And then with power, I don't know how to explain this, with power that seems to penetrate all of the forces of darkness that separate this young man from reality, a voice like 10,000 waterfalls, if you will, shatters, splits, cuts right through the veil, the evil, the darkness, the confusion, the obfuscation, the insanity of his life, cuts through all of that. And he hears this voice say, out of him, loose him, let him go free. And suddenly... In a moment, can you, can you understand this? I wonder. I wonder if we can even comprehend it, get our minds around it. He is free. Instantly, wonderfully, miraculously free. He can see. He can hear. He can speak. He can think. He is clear. He is aware. He is lucid. He is sharp. Suddenly, the day dawns into the demonized nightmare in which he has been living, and he is free. <laughs> we have such a weak notion of what it means to be saved in America. Weak notion. 
If you don't feel good about your life, you're not really a happy person, a little confused, then pray a little prayer and maybe shake the preacher's hand and get in a little class at the church and show up once in a while and then things will be better. No, 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 no. See, the biblical concept of salvation is so deep, it is so significant, it is so profound that we often fail to comprehend it. We don't realize what's really happening. You see, when Jesus Christ, the pre-existent, co-eternal Word of God, when He comes into your life, it takes you from darkness into His glorious light, up from the dead, not just dying, but dead. Not just drowning, but drowned. Not just trying to get through, but doomed, without hope, without, without a future. From that into a marvelous life. It is a translation, a metamorphosis from one state of being to another. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. It is a transformative power that is hard to comprehend. It means a total release then from every force, every binding element that wants to capture us and drag us into the baser elements of the universe. Think about this young man. In a moment, he's transformed from death to life. Can you imagine? <laughs> Living for years in darkness and in sanity and in an instant, he is free. Glory to God. We can't even imagine. This man looks up into the eyes of Jesus. We don't know what he said. It's not recorded what he said. But we can imagine. We can guess. I can guess. He probably looked up and said, my Lord and my God. Friends, now let me share something that's very important to me. I don't believe it's possible. I don't believe it's possible biblically or theologically or philosophically to look into the face of God and say, uh, Lord, wash away my sins. Please forgive me. I don't want to go to hell when I die. Oh, and by the way, don't ask me for anything. Don't place any demands on my life. Don't intrude into the way I like things, if you don't mind. I mean, I appreciate not having to go to hell. I do. But don't push it. Don't push me. No, no. Here's what I believe. I believe God expects full surrender, full submission, full capitulation. I believe that we all should live our lives as if Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord. He's the boss of our lives. He's the controlling agent of our lives. I believe the man said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I surrender. Because only the Christ, the Messiah, could have done this for me. Let me tell you a story. A good friend of mine, Dr. Paul Morrell, he's in, Dr. Morrell's in heaven today. He served uh, First United Methodist Church in Carrollton, Texas for many years, and we served together on the board of a mission agency for many years. And Dr. Morrell told me this story one time. He said that he had organized some special renewal services in his church on Sunday evenings for a protracted number of weeks, and he said in one of those weeks, they were, they were singing some praise choruses, uh, and their worship band was just leading in these choruses, and then he was going to give a, a message and then give people an opportunity to come to the altar and pray and seek God. It was a renewal service. 
Now, all of us need points of renewal. And he said, in the middle of the singing that Sunday night, a man burst through the double doors in the back of the sanctuary. He said he hit the doors with such force that these hinged doors hyperextended and completely came open and then banged against the wall in the back of the sanctuary. He said it was so loud that it just shocked everybody. Everybody just was shocked by it. And they jumped, you know, as they startled. And he said, in walked this man. He was a big man, a burly man, with a big beard, wearing a Harley Davidson t-shirt. You can picture this guy. Big hobnob boots, you know, with spikes and those leather straps with spikes in the, in the straps. And he said he came walking in. He said, one of my ushers went over and spoke to him. And later the usher said, I just asked him, may I help you? And the man says, where am I? And he said, well, this is the Methodist church. And the man said, what? Just like that. And then just literally just pushed him aside. Dr. Morrell said he came walking down the center aisle. It was a hardwood floored aisle. He said he came with those boots, bam, bam. Bam, like this. He sounded like Goliath walking down the aisle. How many of you know the praise singing was over? (laughs) Dr. Morrell said he came and sat down in the second pew, second row. He said, so I got up and I preached my sermon. And he said, at the end of that sermon, he said, I want to invite people. This is what we've been doing through this whole series, inviting people to come to the front and pray with one another and for one another. And, and he said, so I, I just made this invitation. He said, if you want to be saved, get up and come up here. <laughs> he said, the man got up. He walked around, came up on the platform, walked right over to the pulpit. <laughs> he said, he put his arms around me. And he said, he buried his head in my shoulder and began to sob. He said, after a few moments, he pushed back just a little bit. And he said, Mr., he said, you see this, you see this uh, red on my shirt? Yes. He said, before I left my house tonight, he said, I punched my wife in the nose. He said, this, this is the blood that splattered on my shirt. He said, I got on my motorcycle, and he said, I started riding. And he said, I got a certain place in the road, and I heard a voice behind me say, turn left at the next intersection. He said, Mr., I almost wrecked my bike when I spun around to see who was on the back of my motorcycle talking to me. He said, Mr., nobody was there. He said, in just a few minutes, he said, I heard the voice again, turn right at the next street and then turn left into that parking lot. He said, I parked in the parking lot and I came in this building. And he said, this is the first church I've ever been in in my life. And then he looked at my friend Paul Morell and he said, I didn't know what to expect here, but what I got is freedom. You like that story? It's a good story, isn't it? Uh Uh-huh. See, that's where this young man started. You don't start by giving away pickup trucks, by giving away homes and parcels of land. You start by saying, yes, Lord. You start by saying, oh, God, I'm blind. I want to see. I'm lost. I need to be found. I'm I'm in bondage. I need to be free. You start by asking Jesus to save you. That is to say, by falling at his feet and saying, help, Lord. Help me. This is is very difficult for us in the modern American church because we're so well-manicured and well-groomed and well-perfumed. 
But we must all find the grace to fall at his feet and say, Lord Jesus, save me, for without you, I am utterly doomed. Now, I'm not done with this sermon this morning, but I want to give an invitation. So would you bow your heads and pray just with me just for a moment? Maybe you're in the room this morning and you say, I'm not a particularly bad person, but I need to surrender to Jesus. I want to make him Lord of my life. Every relationship, every thought, every motive, every possession, my ambitions, my goals, my dreams, my aspirations. Your prayer is, be Lord of my life as never before. If you resonate with that prayer, just lift your hand. Nobody's looking around. Just lift it up. Hold it up. Keep it up. Hold it up. Keep it up. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life like never before. I want him front and center, Lord of my life. Now listen, I may not see your hand, but Jesus knows your middle name. He'll hear your prayer. Amen. Now look back up here. Don't you know that from that day forward? Think about it. This young man would have done anything for Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe he would have done anything? (laughs) Yeah. So Jesus says, all right then. Someday you're going to hear these words. One of these days, listen for it. You're going to hear these words. The Lord has need of it. And when you do, you'll know that it's I, myself, speaking to you. And so the young man takes a job working construction. He puts a few dollars together, then he takes a wife. And he forms his own company, and he finds great success. Finally, he comes to a point when he can purchase the thing that he has always wanted, that he has always dreamed of. He has been thinking for years about this, and now he can finally afford it. It's a brand new pickup truck. He's just driven it home. He ordered it. It was customized. All of the special features is exactly what he wanted. And so he has picked it up from the dealership. He has driven it home. It has less than 100 miles on it. And it's sitting out in front of his house. And he hears a commotion out in front of his house. And he goes out on the front porch. And there's Peter and John. And they're hot wiring the truck. (laughs) And he says to them, naturally, what are you doing with my truck? And one of them turns to him and simply says, the Lord has need of it. Point number two, write this down. It's a humble and thankful heart. Thankful. Write down the word thankful. See, the obedience which springs from a gratitude-filled heart, from a thankful heart, knows from where it sprang, from whom it has come, to whom it shall return. This is the kind of generosity. This is the kind of giving that comes through obedience which is birthed in joy. It's a happy giving. It's a cheerful giving. Now, there is a kind of naked obedience, you know, just doing what you're told. And, you know, in the category of giving financially, people live somewhere in the variance here. If you've been around Union Chapel very long, you know that I personally believe in tithing. I I not only believe in tithing, I know how to say tithing, I know how to spell tithing, I know how to teach on tithing, I know how to preach on tithing. 
I believe in giving to God a minimum of 10%. I believe it's such a significant spiritual principle that God will honor it even if your heart isn't completely in it. Yeah. I believe that you can begin to tithe out of a simple determination to obey God, and God will honor that. But that's not the richest way. That's not the way that leads to joy. You see, the way that tithing brings joy is to say, God, everything I have is yours. I was a demonized wretch cowering in a doorway until you came. I was lost and undone, living in confusion and darkness and impending doom. It was a walking nightmare until you came. See, anytime in my life that God has asked anything of me, I always revert back to September of 1971. And let me tell you why. This is part of my story. In 1971, as a 16-year-old boy who had, for the first time in his life, come to terms with the lostness of my soul, I was aware of the fact that I was separated from God, that my own sin had separated me from God, and there was nothing that I could do to remedy that. It's there that I return in my thinking to the, to the evening when I said yes to Jesus. And I consider the amazing grace of God and his ultimate sacrifice for my sins. The sins of the entire world, yes. But my sins in particular, I go there. And then I realize I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I owe everything to him. All that I am, all that I ever hope to be, all the hope that awaits me in eternity, is all dependent on him. I owe my life to him. I'm no longer my own. So since September of 1971, I can honestly say all appropriate weaknesses acknowledged, and I have a a list. We could spend the rest of the day just hearing about my weaknesses. With all appropriate weaknesses acknowledged, I can say since 1971, and I said yes to Jesus, I have never turned my back on God when he asked me to do something. Not once. What could he ask? What could he ask of me? Don't you see? I only have life because of him. I only have meaning, purpose because of him. I only have hope. Only because of him. What could he ask? What could he ask? Until we see our relationship with God, with that kind of humble gratitude, then we're going to fail. We're going to fail in the challenge of obedience. We're going to fail in the challenge of prayer. We're going to fail in the challenge of churchmanship and discipleship and stewardship and relationship. Until you look upon the cross and see your own personal sin nailed there, you'll never know the simple joy of obedience to Christ. The owner of this animal, you'll recall from our text, He didn't try to negotiate with Peter and John. There's no record that he made a peep. He didn't try to rationalize his position. Wait a minute, wait a minute, I've been saving up for years for that thing. Or defend his possessions. It's brand new. It's never been ridden. 
It's so easy to be consumed with the material world and material things that can easily cause us to miss the simple joy and freedom that comes when we live in obedience to Christ. Last point, number three, write this down. It's an act of faith. An act of faith. Now, when it comes to giving financial gifts, and by the way, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You understand that that in the last two years, Union Chapel has received over $3 million each of those years. (laughs) That's amazing. That's a miracle. Have you driven around Muncie? It's remarkable. This is an act of God. Generous people, obedient people, so many. But let me just remind us, there is no more beautiful nor manifestly biblical way to demonstrate my absolute conviction that God will provide for me. No better way than by giving. No better way. Giving is the world thing, one thing the world can't comprehend. The devil can't get it. Your own flesh doesn't understand it sometimes. My flesh doesn't get it sometimes. God asked me to give a certain amount, and I just go, but, but what? Too. But in obedience and the, and the joy that comes from that obedience, the miracles that flow out of that obedience, that's what makes life so fulfilling. See, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, an authentic, mature Christian person says it this way, everything I have is from God. If I give 10% of it away, what is that? If the first 10% is his and the last 10% is his, it's all his. <laughs> what can he ask of me? Uh, one great man with the gift of giving in his lifetime gave millions and millions of dollars to the cause of Christ over time. And when asked how he could give so much away, he responded, and I quote, Oh, you are asking the wrong question. The question isn't how can I give so much away, but rather how much of God's money do I dare keep? See, only a grateful broken, humble heart can ask the question that way. Too many, of us, too many of us are tempted to ask the question in another way. People ask the question like this, how much do I let Jesus have? I mean, how much, how much of my life do I actually let Jesus have? Because my concern is if I give Jesus too much, then I'll be unhappy. I have given him too much, and then I won't be happy. <laughs> and it's deceit. People say, if if I give him too much of my thoughts, too much of my relationships, my attitudes, my finances, my resources, my time, my talents, my energies, if I give him too much, then it will make me feel like I don't have enough. And I'll wind up being unhappy. But here's the truth of it, friends. When we ask the question this way, it always leaves us more unhappy and miserly in life. Miserly in emotions, miserly in relationships, miserly with a sense of purpose and meaning in life, miserly with our stuff. It always has just the opposite effect. The world is always, always impressing us to clutch a hold of the things around us and to cry, never enough, more please, more. And Jesus says, open your hands, would you? You want to find real life, true life, meaningful life, purposeful life, open your hands and open your heart and give yourself in joyful obedience to the best plan of God for your life in Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. So I'm so convinced of this that I want to challenge you this morning. I I don't know any other way to do this than to simply just say it right out. Uh, I get two basic responses to my ministry over the years in these two basic categories. One category is you are so straightforward that's offensive 
and I don't like it, and so bug off. And the other response I get is, you are so straightforward and so plain and so clear that even I can understand it, and it's been meaningful in my life, so thank you. And what I've discovered in all of this is that I, I just have one style and one, one technique, and that is just to be straightforward. I'm not, I, I, I guess I'm not smart enough to you know, nuance it and warm it up so that everybody can sip on it. So let me just say this out, out, outright. If you have income to your name, I'm not talking about gross assets necessarily, but you have a regular income to your name, then I challenge you to begin to tithe on it. Tithe for 90 days. Challenge the Lord straight out about this. Challenge the Lord. He's, he's made the offer. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I'll not pour out a blessing. That's the challenge the Lord gives. So if you make $1,000 a week, give $100. If you make a $5 allowance every week, then give 50 cents. That way everybody's given the same and everybody can participate. Yeah. Jesus never thinks in terms of the amount. Jesus never thinks in terms of the amount. Jesus never thinks in terms of the amount. It is never about what you give. It is always about why you give. So you say, well, that's embarrassing. I don't have anything to give right now. You know, I, well, then put your two cents in. Remember the widow from, widow from two weeks ago that got Jesus' attention? All of his indicator lights went on because she, she put her two cents in. Well, that's embarrassing. I wouldn't put two. Well, don't, you don't have to sign your name to it. Don't use an offering envelope. Just put the two cents in. Give something. You say, it's embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. It's honorable. And it provokes the blessing of God. You want the blessing of God in your life? Then obey him. Obey him. And here at Union Chapel, we give a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you start tithing today, and in 90 days, you aren't able to satisfy the bills in your life, then all you have to do is make one contact. You contact me. Email me. You can, get on, you can find my email address right online there at unionchapel.com. Just send me an email. Send me a text. Give me a call. S write me a note. All you have to do is give me your name. If you give me your name and you say, need my money back, then what we will do is take every penny that you've given to the church in the last 90 days and refund it. And if you tell me a pitiful story, I'll give you more than what you put in because you're pitiful <laughs> and you need help. So let us help you. You're in a situation. You need help. Okay? 90-day money-back guarantee. I'm serious as I can be. But let me just remind you of something. God will not be indebted to you. He will not be indebted to me. He'll not be indebted to anybody. No one's ever going to get to heaven and look Jesus in the eye and say, You owe me, pal. One more statement. Look at it on the screen. Giving then becomes an expression of our love and gratitude for what God has already done in our lives and an expression of faith that God can take care of me no matter what. Reaching your bulletin, there's this insert. has the blessed life on it. This is, this is all voluntary from this point forward. You don't have to do this, but I encourage you to do it. It'll help you. And on the back side of that, just under the perforation, you can see that there are three boxes there. I want to challenge everyone here to mark one of those boxes.
Mark 1. The first box is, I will continue to tithe. Many, many people in our church are tithers. Many people. We can't, we can't have the resources that God gives us here without people living in obedience to the tithe. So many of you, perhaps even most of you, will mark that first box. I will continue to tithe. This is the box that Beth and I will, will check. Because you're listening to the voice of a person right now who wouldn't be caught dead not tithing. No. I would not live without being generous financially. No. Because I'm, a, I'm selfish. I'm a glutton. What am I selfish about? I'm selfish about the blessing of God. I love the blessing of God. I've become... I've become addicted to the blessing of God. I'm a mess when it comes to the blessing of God. I want, I prefer, I need the blessing of God in my life. And this provokes it. The blessing of God will come upon you and overtake you. That's how I want to live, with the blessing of God all over me. This is the way we live. That's the way I live. I've lived my life decades like this. <laughs> I'm going to continue to tie. The only frustration I have in a moment like this is my inability to communicate this. I get frustrated by it because I can, I can feel that folks are going, I don't think so. And I just wonder what's, what, what's wrong with me. I can't communicate it better. The second box is I will start to tithe. I will start to tithe. Now, this is that 90-day mo money-back thing. You start, and, and we'll guarantee it. I will start to tithe. Some of you could, and some of you should because you're not, and you should. Because you're not, but you should. <laughs> Check that box. I'll start tithing. Then the third category is this. I'll increase my giving with a view toward tithing. Because everybody's got a story. Everyone has a circumstance. You may not be in a position right now because of prior issues or crises or health issues. You know, everyone's got a story. You say, well, I, just, I can't afford, I can't do that right now. Okay, I get it. So you need to overcome some things. You know, there's, a, there's a, almost 100 people taking Financial Peace University right now, and they're learning how to take the steps to get out of these, these problems. And maybe you're in that position, too. It's going to take you a while to climb out before you can be a person who can be fully devoted in their tithing. Great. So increase your giving. Well, I don't have anything to give. Yes, you do. Put your two cents in. That bucket goes by, make it rattle. Put two cents in. You got two cents. Put them in. God will notice your heart. That's all that's important. So you're going to increase. And I know you, God knows your heart. You know your heart. When I told, told you earlier that we have a balance on our, on our mortgage at Union Chapel of a million and a half dollars, it went through your mind It's because it's in your heart. You know, if I had an extra million and a half dollars, I would pay that off. And you, you thought it. You actually had that thought because that's what's in your heart. You're a generous person. I get it. So what you want to do is you just want to work toward that. Increase your giving with a view toward tithing. Some of you may say, you know, five years from now, I want to be that person who tithes as soon as I overcome some of the barriers to that. Yeah. So that's a third option. Check that. I'll increase my giving with a view toward tithing. And then tear this off, and in the closing song, the ushers will come and collect them, and then this next week I'll send you a letter just to encourage you. Hey, I, heard your, I saw your commitment. I'm with you. I'll be praying with you. And God's going to bless your life. All right? There it is. Now let's pray. Just a moment. Lord, we thank you today for your word and for the way that you've inspired us 
And we, we pause to ask this question. It kind of gnaws at me, maybe it gnaws at others. What could God ask of me that I wouldn't give? And then we think, Lord, the tithe? Now, wait a minute. What is that? A car? A house? What about an attitude? A habit? A relationship? Jesus, we pray this morning that you would be Lord. And what does that take? It takes everything because Jesus is Lord, and the Lord has need of it. Amen.